0: Distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee.
1: I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio.
2: And I'm Josh. I live in western Pennsylvania.
0: Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out. New distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked.
1: We each have our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or help you better understand one that has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast
2: is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like
0: and what we didn't. I tend to prefer looking at distros that would be kind to a new user, especially one who is l- hoping to move over from another operating system such as Windows or Mac OS. Oh,
1: well, I tend to take on the more advanced distros
2: and give them a go. And I'm more of a Linux gamer and sysadmin ninja.
0: We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro and will also divulge what hardware we're using and how we think the hardware may have affected the rating. <music> Welcome to DistroHopper's Digest, episode 037, recorded on October 27th, 2022. For this episode, we will be reviewing Pardus 21.3 Dolonet, KDE Neon User Edition, and TrueNAS Scale. Monthly foibles wherein we discuss what we did this month. I spent a lot of time trying different distros to see what I could review this month. I got some good ideas, which should wait until next month. I've had two days of subbing in the past month, and we're planning our trip to Shambanicon after Thanksgiving. I have also had some interesting travails concerning Firefox on Mint 21, but I'll talk about those a bit later in the show. I've had some issues with Mint losing its panel, aka Taskbar. There are easy fixes, but they don't appear to be permanent. I had this on only one machine, so I installed Mint 20.3 Cinnamon on it instead of my usual Mate, but then started having it on another machine. I noticed that I had never had this issue until the more recent kernel upgrades of 5.4, so I tried 5.15, nothing to report at present. Anything exciting going on with you, Dale?
1: I finished making all the ethernet cables for my network. That included my patch panel in my network rack. I use a blank panel and place individual keystone modules in it along with keystone filler modules to cover the unused slots. I like the look and flexibility of a blank panel so that I am not limited to just ethernet modules. Now that I have everything connected I can move on to cable management and other organization. One of the items I gave to a friend when I moved was my Dawa 4-Camera HD-CVI DVR system. HD-CVI is HD Composite Video Interface that uses coax that is used in cable or satellite TV. He called me Wednesday asking if we could install the cameras. I had all the items needed to install them except for the compression BNC connectors. I couldn't find mine so I bought some. The short version of the events is that the connectors were junk and bent when compressed in the the tool. So we postponed things until I could get usable connectors. I found a bag of compression BNC connectors at home later that evening. It rained overnight so we couldn't safely get on the roof to install the other two cameras. We at least got two of the cameras so he was happy. That kept us busy Thursday and Friday using his uh, available free time. He mentioned that the computer he uses for his streaming radio station has been locking up and had random application crashes. I came back Saturday to look at it. The idle CPU temperature was 63 degrees Celsius, which was way too high. I removed the old paste and applied new paste, and the idle temperature dropped to 36 degrees Celsius, which is about average for air cooling. There was a tense moment when trying to remove the heatsink from the CPU. Now keep in mind, this computer was on 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for 2 years. So it had plenty of time to bake in the paste. I twisted the heatsink to break it loose from the uh, the CPU. I thought it was loose enough and began to pull up. It intentionally pulled the CPU from the socket without the retaining clip being released. Luckily, none of the pins were bent and the socket didn't appear damaged. And considering how many hundreds of pins that are on that CPU, that was luck. <laughs> <laughs> so, we updated the UEFI, which is something you usually don't do, but we looked at the uh, changelog and there were some things in there that fixed some things that were problems for him. His birthday was on the uh, following Tuesday, and since I had to leave for work on Tuesday... We observed it on Saturday. He uses Spectrum Mobile and has been wanting a new 5G phone. Since I canceled my Spectrum Mobile service, I didn't need my Spectrum branded Motorola Stylus 5G any longer. So I gave it to him as a birthday present. He was very happy since it was a bigger screen and faster. He texted me Tuesday that the computer crashed again that that evening. Since it is a critical computer in his operation, he replaced the motherboard, CPU, and memory. He will give me the motherboard, and CPU, and memory to test, which I've yet to receive yet, but I've been living my hermit lifestyle this week. So, Josh, what have you been up to?
2: Yeah, so my uh my friend got a uh, new-to-him computer. Basically, his one buddy had a bunch of old parts because he buys new computers all the time, and new parts and everything so he built a computer for my friend out of his old parts and a few months after he uh, he got the PC it started acting up on him Uh, he finally got fed up with it and uh, sent it to me to look at when I got the PC it would boot up to log in fine but I couldn't get much further than that so I decided to pull the drives out and give them a look two of the drives wouldn't mount and the other was really slow One drive was a Western Digital Green, a notoriously bad drive with a history of issues. One drive was a Seagate Barracuda, a really great drive that I always highly recommend. And the last drive was a PNY SSD, which I didn't even know they made SSDs. Um, And I know nothing about them at all. So uh, I don't have an opinion on them other than this one (laughs) one issue. The WD Green was totally shot. Um, I couldn't even mount the drive. I I didn't really dig too far on that one because uh, the last drive he sent me, uh, that was a WD Green, wouldn't mount or anything as well. Uh, The Seagate Barracuda drive mounted fine. It uh, just took a while to mount and that drive passed all the tests that I gave it, including the uh, smart test, which uh, said it was still good and there weren't that many errors and the speed seemed about right for how old the drive was and all that yeah so this brings me to the pny drive that on the other hand it took a while to mount i mean a long time probably like 10 minutes or so i finally got to mount and i did actually get all the data off of it but i reinstalled windows on it again and that didn't work I have uh, I have no idea what was wrong with the PNY drive. I'm still looking into it to see if there's any anything good left in it, but um, I couldn't even get it to get the smart test to uh, come up for it. it wouldn't even it just basically said the drive wasn't there at all. so um yeah, apparently the drive was new. The guy said he bought it brand new, so I don't know I have no idea. So my friend told me that if I if I could get the drive to work that I could keep the drive. So I'm going to try a little harder and see if I can um get the drive to work. I don't know. I think it's pretty much shot though. So after uh telling my friend that he effectively had only one drive left and it was a hard drive, not an SSD, he asked me uh what SSD drives are good that he could buy. I told him about the Silicon Power drives and he bought 3 of them. Uh 2 two terabyte drives and one 512 gigabyte drive Uh, so I installed windows on the uh, 512 gigabyte drive and installed steam and um, all of his games I I have them downloaded now but I need to start each one of them at least once uh, because he doesn't have internet at his house so um, as long as the games are started once you can play them offline that's just a steam thing it's it basically when you download the game it just downloads the files and then when you start the game up it actually installs the game it's kind of weird doesn't make sense but that's how steam has always been so other than my friends computer uh, I really don't have much else going on because uh, I haven't had a chance to really do much Uh, my next goal is to get all my smart devices set up like my uh, light bulbs and my smart switches I'm possibly going to try Mycroft to try to uh, do the voice commands instead of using Amazon or Google products. Yeah, I have come to the conclusion that if I do end up using some sort of Amazon or Google product, I'm probably going to stick with Google um, just because both my wife and I have Android phones. So both of them effectively are able to uh, do voice commands from them. So basically, then I'll have three voice Devices that I can talk to and say, you know, turn on the lights, do this, do that. Um, because I have my phone, my wife's phone, and I have a Google Home Mini that I got for free for signing up with Spotify.
0: Well, I would like to point out that Alexa has an app for Android, which works pretty well. So if you can get the Echo cheaper than the Google Home, uh, go for it.
2: So that's the thing. I agree with you there. You know, if it, if it's a money thing, definitely, you know, don't hesitate to save some money. But for me, Personally, I have the Amazon stuff and I have my Google stuff and I'm like, do I really want to have my Google phones and my Amazon stuff at the same time and both collecting all of my data at the same time when I could just have one and kind of limit the other half, even though, you know, Amazon gets enough of my data while I'm shopping.
0: (laughs) That's when you mount Calyx OS on your uh, Android phone.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Don't don't bring me down that rabbit trail again. I've been there.
0: (laughs) I'm there now. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. I've been using Calyx for several months. I've got a phone set up for my wife with it. We, for some reason, we can't get her contacts list to download to her sim mm. card or elsewhere other than google and if it goes to google we can't get it off there onto a non-google right. phone so that's the only reason she's not using calyx os now
2: that's such a shame uh well uh, that's it for me anyway so on to the updates
0: updates where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed Ubuntu 22.10, the Kinetic Kudu, is out in all official flavors, including Unity as a new official flavor. I was disappointed to learn that the DistroTest website has gone away. It was a good site where you could install any distro to their cloud and see how it installs and runs. They'd been trying to sell their domain, but apparently just closed it down. It will be missed. Dale?
1: There is some great news from the Debian project. They voted on whether to include the non-free firmware on the official ISOs or not. There were six options, and the winner was number five, which was to make changes to the social contract to allow non-free firmware in the official release of Debian where proprietary firmware blobs were needed to make the computers run. That required a three-to-one vote to pass the non-free media will replace the existing media that doesn't include the non-free firmware. I will include a link in the show notes that explains this in much more detail, and another to the social contract. And the social contract is a document that explains what software licenses are allowed and the official Debian ISOs, among other guidances. I'm hoping this will be in place for the upcoming release of Debian 12, and 2023. In other Debian news, they've released 10.13, which is the final point release of the uh, update to old stable. Debian 10 users are urged to upgrade to Debian 11. Debian security and release teams will not provide any future updates. The link will be in the show notes. Speaking of Debian 11 stable, version 11.5 has been released. Existing installations can update in place to version 11.5. The uh, link will be in the show notes. The Debian project announced the code name for Debian 14. It will be called Forky. Debian 13, which was previously named, will be called Trixie. I love that one for reasons we're not going to go into. <laughs> Forky was a spork. If you're not sure if that's a popular thing in, in Europe could this be a north american thing spark is a spoon and a fork put together so it's a spiny fork or pointy fork and trixie was a triceratops toy from the a series of movies called toy story
0: yeah it, uh, you mean a spiny spoon but that's okay most people aren't aware that all debian releases are named after uh characters in toy story
1: yeah, I'm surprised a lot of people don't do that because Sid was the was the child that broke all the toys. And then you had Woody, who is the soldier. Or not really soldier, but the cowboy. And you had Potato, Mr. Potato Head. They couldn't call it that because they didn't have the rights to the name. <laughs> but yeah, there is... A, oh, I can't remember what Debian 7 was. But in any case, yeah, there's Jesse. There is... A, I can't remember what's 7, but in any case, yeah, that was uh, good trivia there. In other distros, Spiral Linux 11.220925 was updated to Debian Stable 11.5. A link will be provided. The Solus project is in the process of updating to Noma 43. Now, that was a particular interest to me because when Ikey and uh, just blanked on his name, Josh Strobel? Yeah, when Josh Strobel, thank you, Josh, when he left, I thought they were just going to pitch Gnome because they were the ones keeping it alive, even though they complained about all the GTK4 stuff. But apparently they're not. So we'll have to see what happens there. If his
0: name was Moss, I would have remembered it.
1: <laughs> That's just... Part part of getting old, it is, I have memory, it's just in cold storage. Okay, RedCore Linux, the Gentoo-based distro, has a new ISO codename Rastaban. I think that's a cool name. The most notable improvement is they enabled syncing every six hours with the Gentoo repos. This will allow them to release more current updates instead of the manual ones that took them up to a week to release and a link in the show notes. Zero Linux has a new ISO for its rolling release. It's a uh, Arch-based distro. Updated kernel 5.19.9 and KDE Plasma version 5.25.5. Another notable update is the ability to do an in-place update. Previously you had to do a fresh install. If you watch the distroTube YouTube channel the Dev Dark Zero attends DT's monthly uh, patron chat. He occasionally speaks about Zero Linux during the video, sort of like a an update, like we all do on our podcasts and shows. A link to the release notes will be in the show notes. StormOS, another Arch-based distro, I reviewed it in episode 27. They've released a Debian-based edition using Bullseye. Moss will be reviewing this in episode. Thirty-eight. If the creek don't rise. A link to their website is in the show notes. And last but definitely not least, Gecko Linux released static 154.220822 based on OpenSUSE Leap 15.4 and rolling 999.220820 based on OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. A link will be in the show notes. Do you have any? Updates to us? Uh, I
2: didn't really uh, look into it, so I really I don't. <laughs> I should I should keep up on this more? But I yeah, I just didn't have time this round.
0: Okay, moving along. Beautiful failures. What we tried and failed to install or run this month. Mint twenty one has a way of losing contact with the Mesa drivers while using Firefox. I don't know whether it has this issue with anything else. The fix is to purge the repo version and install the Flatpak. Another possibility is to revert to Mint 20.3, which I have done on all of my machines, except my wife's. Thanks to Hoosie on the Mintcast Telegram group for finding the fix. I have also run into the issue of closing the app causing the whole panel to disappear. The answer is simple. For Mate, you open a terminal with Control alt t and type g settings reset hyphen recursively org.mate.panel. For cinnamon it's the same thing except the line is g settings reset recursively org.cinnamon. Regardless of the simplicity of the fix, it has been happening more and more on my machines, and the fix does not appear to be permanent, so as I've never had this previously, I'm thinking it may be caused by the more recent updates of the 5.4.0 kernel. As I stated above, I have tried a different kernel on one of the two machines I've had this issue on. Dale,
1: I didn't have any failures. So, Josh,
2: lucky you, Dale. <laughs> so, uh, my beautiful failure is um actually work related. Uh my coworker and I have been trying to set up a, a file server uh for us for um miscellaneous things uh that we need that aren't included in the file server that work provides. Which, uh, don't get me started on that. Um, <laughs> I was uh, trying to use a VM to see if I could get the file server um, up and running on my work desktop. But every single time I tried, I could access the VM, but the, my coworker couldn't even get through on the network. On the, even though we were on the same network, he couldn't you know get on, sign into it. Um, I tried bringing in my own router, setting that up between um, the two of us, and uh, still couldn't connect. Uh, I don't have any clue why, but I tried VirtualBox and I tried Hyper-V and both did not work. Uh, so then I looked at the uh, decommission rack, uh, which is just uh, computers that need to be uh, to have their hard drives wiped and then uh, put into salvage. Uh, I grabbed one of them, yeah. took out the hard drive, replaced it with an SSD and an NVMe drive, and then I tried to install TrueNAS Scale. Uh, for some reason... It was going really slowly. It took maybe between five and 10 minutes uh, just to boot. So I decided that there had to be something wrong. I decided to change out the drive that I was installing uh, TrueNAS Scale on. And uh, once I did that, all was well. It sounds like this was a pretty fast endeavor, but it took me maybe two days to figure out all this crap. (laughs) And uh, I'm still not sure it works. I haven't had a chance to really test it. I literally just got it installed, and that was the last thing I got to do. Uh, So I guess this was a failure slash success, but a lot of failures to get to that success. (laughs) So uh, let's move on to the reviews.
0: Okay, this episode I'm going to be reviewing KDE Neon User Edition. This distro has been around for quite some time and is often considered not a distro, as it is packaged with LTS Ubuntu-based, the latest Plasma desktop and tools, and not much else. We haven't looked at it for a couple years. Why is Neon called a non-distro? Because, as I said, it does not come packaged with apps such as Office, Graphics, or Sound apps. Just the base, Plasma desktop, and Plasma tools. Still, you can use App, Synaptic, or Discover to add all those things easily from the Ubuntu repos. Neon installs with the LTS base, which is still on 20.04. This could be a good thing, as they are still finding issues with 22.04, but with a 5.15 kernel and you get the absolutely up-to-the-minute Plasma now at 5.25. My hardware, I install on SDB2 of my Lenovo ThinkPad T540P with a 6th Gen i7 4700MQ at 2.4GHz with Intel and NVIDIA GeForce GT730M graphics and 16 gigs of DDR3 RAM. SDB2 is a partition of a 512GB Silicon Power SSD. Installation ease and issues, the installer is Ubuntu and everyone knows it by now, nothing special or different. If you've ever installed Ubuntu or Mint or anything based on Ubuntu not using Calamara's installer, you've used this. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. I am happy to report that my Wi-Fi login was saved by the installer. It also did not mess with my grub and I could easily change control back to other distros installed on the machine. I would note that most official Ubuntu flavors will write a 32-bit UEFI instead of a 64-bit grub. The downloaded ISO was dated from January 2022 and there were 738 packages to update after the installation. After downloading the updates, I was prompted to reboot. It installed all the updates and rebooted again with a different, much more eye-piercing wallpaper so my first order of business was to change it back. I've had several more updates. It just feels funny having to reboot twice to complete the installation, but it seems to work. Some updates will install without requiring a reboot. If you do get an update which asks for a reboot, you should complete the reboot, not just turn the machine off, as it does a fair bit of installation on the next boot and often needs a second reboot to complete the task. There is a nice little checkbox at the bottom of Discover if you're using that, to set your system to automatically reboot when the update is completed. Sometimes upon reboot, you will get seemingly hundreds of announcements that your system is waiting for a start process to complete, which, if you look at it carefully, it's also telling you the status of the update in percentage. This feels way too much like Windows taking your system over, but you do get to choose when to run the updates. Even after all the updates, Neon is still using the 20.04 Ubuntu base. More funny business, when I boot, I often have to hit the selection button on my jellycomb trackball before the trackball gets recognized. And when I open Firefox for the first time, some number of tabs, it could be one or two or all of them, report they cannot find the server. All I have to do is click the reload button on each tab and they will load properly. I will also point out that since Neon uses the absolute latest Plasma and that is frequently updated, you will have a lot more updates than you would normally be used to getting. Ease of use. If you love fresh Plasma, you will love using this distro. If you can live with more stability but fewer updates, you might want to choose Kubuntu. Memory and disk use, 15 gigs of space used on the SSD, 660 megabytes of memory was used reported by Free-H. I thought it would be smaller as many plasma installations have been under 500 megabytes ease of finding help. There's always help for Ubuntu, and the same can be said for Plasma. The various Ubuntu forums are always available, if nothing else, but you probably have lots of friends already using this whom you can hit up for help. I do that a lot too much. I talk to my friends before I look anything up. Plays nice with others. I've had no problems caused by this distro while using it, and it is one of five distros on this machine. Stability. You may have some issues with Plasma, which is the risk of using the shiny new version at all times, but Ubuntu is Ubuntu. No stability issues should arise. Similar distros to check out. Kubuntu, Ferran OS, Solid K, Debian with Plasma. My Ratings. Ease of installation. New user 9 out of 10. Experienced user 10 out of 10. Hardware issues 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help 10 out of 10. Ease of use, 8 out of 10. Plays nice with others, 10 out of 10. Stability, 10 out of 10. And my overall rating is 9 out of 10. Final comments. This is a fine distro once you get used to the constant updates and the tiny risk of something brand new not working right. It doesn't come with any apps which are not specifically Plasma or Plasma Toolkit, not even other KDE apps. So bloat is not an issue. For more stability, you might choose to use Kubuntu LTS. For more complete Plasma system with sane choices, except for choosing a Vivaldi browser, try Ferran OS. Kubuntu and most other Plasma-using distros will not have the latest Plasma, but could have a more up-to-date kernel and base packages. So let's move on to Dale. What?
1: I thought uh, in our pre-show chat that you might want to say that disability has uh, greatly improved over the, uh, the past uh, five years, you would say.
0: Oh, yeah. Discover has made leaps and bounds of, of improvement. It is usable. So let's move on to Dale.
1: Okay. I have Partis 21.3, and I think it's Dolanay. Is how you uh, pronounce it. My uh, intro for this is the uh, distro request by Listener Biku, which you will hear more from in our feedback section. Partis is a Debian based distro featuring XFCE or the GNOME desktop. The name comes from the genus of the leopard. Partis was created by the Turkish National Research Institute of Electronics and Cryptography. A division of the Scientific and Technological Research Council of Turkey in 2003. The first version was released in 2005 and was based on Gentoo Linux. Around 2013, it was rebased on Debian. There was a corporate edition and a community edition available. The community edition appears dormant as the last version was released in 2018. Currently, the National Academic Network and Knowledge Center maintains the distro. It is used by many government offices and military facilities in Turkey. It is available in Turkish and English. My hardware. The laptop I used is my Lenovo ThinkPad T460. It has an Intel dual-core i5-6200U at 2.8 gigahertz CPU, a 14-inch display using HD graphics, 520, 16 GB of RAM, and a 500 GB Samsung 860 EVO SSD. Installation Ease and Issues I downloaded both the XFCE and GNOME ISOs. They are installed in a dual boot. The checksums provided were MD5SUM text files, but the file was formatted wrong and the MD5SUM application couldn't read the file. I'm thinking it was created in an editor that had line breaks in it and it doesn't like those hidden line breaks. I manually calculated the checksum by typing md5sum and the name of the ISO file. Then I visually compared the checksum to the ones listed in the md5sum file. A little tedious, but no big deal. This was done all via the terminal. Both live USB ISOs defaulted in Turkish even though I uh, chose English during the, uh, the boot up or the grub selection, which required me to change the keyboard layout and language to U.S. English. I actually, I found this out when I tried to type uname space dash A and found that the hyphen was not where it was on my U.S. keyboard. And for FYI, uname hyphen dash or how you want to say it, A, is a command that displays the hostname, kernel version, and the CPU architecture in use. When the dash A flag is used it means all information because there's other command switches, but I'm not going to go into that. The boot screen appeared with the name PARTIS at the top of the screen with a language choice between Turkish and English. The following choices of PARTIS Live, PARTIS Live with Safe Mode, and Install and Install with Graphical User Interface. I installed the XFCE version first and chose the install option. It uses the Incurse's Debian installer. The installation was very easy compared to a normal Debian installation. I entered the hostname followed by my name, username. I selected US English from a language and keyboard setting. I chose to install using the entire disk overriding my previous Debian and the Regolith installations. After a few minutes, the installation was finished. A reminder was given to remove the USB stick before the computer reboots. Then I pressed enter to continue. A post-installation process ran for a minute or so, and the laptop rebooted. I installed the GNOME edition using the graphical installation option, which is again, it's the Debian installer, but it's themed with the uh, Partis name and etc. I completed the same steps I did with the end installed with the exception of the disk partitioning. I selected the manual option and chose the 500 gig ext4 partition and resized it to 250 gigabytes. I wrote the changes to the disk and continued with the installation. I formatted the new partition as ext4. The installation began to install the files and completed asking me if I wanted to use UTC and here's a A tip I want to include in here. I chose the UTC since that is the default method that Linux uses. If you're do booting with Windows, choose no would be the best choice because Windows uses local time by default. I chose to continue and the post installation process commenced. After a few minutes the installation was complete and I rebooted. Post installation hardware facts and issues. Upon reboot into the XFC edition, I signed in and was presented with a notification to connect to the Wi-Fi. And I forgot to put this in the notes. One thing that is lacking with the Debian installers is it doesn't copy over the uh, Wi-Fi. So you have to type it in again, but that's to be expected with Debian. Then the welcome screen appeared. I clicked on next and it presented me with a graphical list of wallpapers to choose from. There was a default one already selected. From there, I clicked next, and I was asked if I want the light theme or a dark theme. I chose the dark theme, of course. The next screen was a uh, surprise. I was able to change my desktop scaling, panel pixel size, and desktop icon size. Kind of reminded me of the post-installation on uh, Linux Mint. The following screen was the keyboard settings. It showed my previous choice of English and allowed me to add additional languages. There was a note showing I could press super and space to switch between the languages and option to turn on a language indicator in the panel. The last screen showed a keyboard shortcut list, links to documentation, community form, and their home page. There is also support information with a phone number linked to GitHub and Discord. That The phone number is kind of interesting, though they do have to support their uh, installations in their country. It's kind of interesting because I don't even think you even see that in like a Red Hat install <laughs> or a Ubuntu install. I'm sure they're available, but I digress. I did have a slight issue entering my Wi-Fi passphrase into the Wi-Fi rid- widget. The choice of red characters on a Dark background was very hard for me to see. I needed to increase the brightness on my screen in order to see it. Despite turning up the brightness, I still had typos. I ended up using XFCE's network manager and configured the Wi-Fi from there. It had a much easier color scheme of white text on a dark background. I noticed it booted very slowly due to the uh, error message. Gave up waiting for suspend resume device. A start job is running for dev disk by ID and the UUID of the partition. And uh, UUID is how they identify the partitions in Linux. After a 40 second to one and a half minute countdown, it will finish booting. Using the up arrow key, I toggled between the boot splash screen and the kernel output screen. So I took a picture of the screen with my phone and looked up the uh, UUID once I logged in. I used at the terminal, lsblk-f lists all of your block devices, which are the partitions and drives on your computer. The dash f switch shows the system details like the UUID of the device. I looked at my slash etc slash fstab file, a lot of people call it stab or stab, file which is responsible for mounting partitions at boot time. I then realized that I forgot to add a swap partition during the installation. I opened up a second terminal window and copied the UUID of the swap partition and pasted it to uh, the other screen with the editor, replacing the wrong UUID with the correct one, which is really obscure. If you didn't define one, where is it getting this UUID from? (laughs) (laughs) It's like throwing darts at a dartboard.
0: Yeah, we've been having that discussion on one of my problems. Anyhow, continue.
1: Yeah, I remember that discussion. That was a puzzling one too, Moss. I saved the fs tab and made the same edit to the (laughs) slash etc slash initramfs-tools slash conf.d slash resume, which is the file that it uses for the suspend and hibernate feature of your laptop. I updated the initramfs by typing sudo update-initramfs-u. After that, I rebooted and it booted up quickly like it should. Here's a tip for everyone. You can use the same swap partition for multiple Linux distros. It is one reason why using a swap partition is better than a swap file in my opinion. You can reuse a swap file but you would have to mount that partition, which brings all the contents of that partition. So it's better just to do the partition, in my opinion. When I booted into the GNOME Edition for the first time, I was presented with the same welcome screen. I chose the different wallpapers since there was quite a few nice selections. The only display option I had was display scaling, and I think that's just the limits of the GNOME um, toolkits. The last screen showed keyboard shortcuts, links, and support information that was in the XFCE edition. One thing I was very impressed with is the Grub boot entries. After I installed the XFCE edition, the boot entry was named Partis space GNU slash Linux. After I installed the GNOME edition, it named that boot entry Partis GNU slash Linux Space21 and noted where it was uh, mounted to. In my case, that was slash dev slash sda2. The XFC edition is using version 4.16, and the GNOME edition was using version 3.38. You have to remember this is Debian stable. Um, testing has the, the four branch. Both of them are using the 5.10 kernel, which is LTS for... uh can't remember until when, but it's still LTS. The packages are the same along with the two, with the exception of packages that are specific to each desktop, like Thunar, the File Manager, and XFCE, and GNOME Files and uh, GNOME, even though they are interchangeable. They're both GTK apps. Pertis has its own themed about window for each desktop. It contains the same information, but it is just presented with a better formatted order. Looks uh, very professional looking. In their About window, you have the ability to export system details, which is useful for submitting for help. It will gather all the details, prompt you for your password, and then place the compressed file, which is a .tgz file, on your desktop. They are using a customized GNOME software center as their GUI package installer. Their GUI Updated appears to be using a common GTK framework, which matches their software center. There is a GUI Deb package viewer installer in the same theme as their package management software. In addition to their software center, they have another package installation tool called packages. I used it when I couldn't find Joe, my favorite text editor in the terminal, when searching for it in the software center. I had a similar experience on Pop! OS using their PopShop software center. They also have the good old Synaptic Package Manager. Since this is intended for office/slash productivity work, I looked to see what was installed. They have a document scanner, document viewer, drawing application, and a GNU image manipulation program, aka GIMP. Others include Evolution, an email client. At version 3.38.3 1 partis 1, which implies they custom compiled that. Firefox is the ESR, which is the extended support release, and it is at version 102.3. LibreOffice is their chosen office package. It is the Debian packaged version of 7.04 2, which is fairly recent. There is a USB writer and formatter that appears to be custom made. The formatter uses FAT32, EXT4, NTFS, and EXFAT. If you're requiring Java, they have an installer. They have a very nice power management application that includes screen brightness control. The last I will mention is Totem, aka GNOME Videos, at version 3.38-0-2 and VLC version 3.0.1.7.4. The only difference I found with the XFC edition were the included XFC apps like Mousepad and Recetro, which are a notepad and image viewer. Partis uses its own uh, curated app repositories. One thing that is absent is Flatpak and Snap. Some of you may share, some of you may sneer. Neither one is installed, and I didn't see any ability to add it to the PARDA Software Center. That however doesn't seem to be an issue. After looking through the PARTA Software Center, I was able to find apps and other distros that are only available via Snap or Flatpak. I was surprised to see such apps as Zoom, Skype, Signal, and Discord were available. Ease of use. In the GNOME edition, they are using GDM as the display manager. I was happy to see that my language and keyboard settings were retained from my installation choices. The language issues during the live session must have been an oversight. In fairness, this is a Turkish-developed and Turkish-used distro. I'm not familiar with Turkey, so I don't know if they use UK or US English. The dark theme is called Pardis-Dark which is very nice. One of my favorite dark themes I've seen. It is a little darker than the other dark themes I've seen. I took a look at the uh, installed uh, extensions and uh, one caught my eye. Pardis created an apt update indicator. It looks similar to the shield icon that Linux Mint uses to uh, show their updates. The design is very well thought out. When I clicked on it, I can see that everything is up to date with the uh, last date it was checked and time. I can check for updates with a simple click of the mouse. When there are updates available, the shield shows the number of updates available. There are various settings for displaying the packages, notifications, and indicator. One interesting setting is the advanced settings in the update method. From there, you can select to launch GNOME software. Ubuntu's Update Manager, GNOME Package Updater, and you can do a custom. I tried installing Flatpak to see if there was any integration available for their software center. I didn't find any. Since they have packaged the apps, you would usually use Flatpak for. That is not an issue. I just uninstalled it. Overall, it is a very enjoyable experience if you like the GNOME desktop. I felt like it was very user-focused with all the management via the GUI. Notification appears in the system tray. The only exception to that was the messaging app. The default behavior is to exit when closed. Since it is an electron app, it has command switches that are not widely known, including one which minimizes it to the system tray. And uh, I'll let you know about this. Command switch is, hyphen, hyphen, use, hyphen, tray, hyphen, icon. What I've done on my laptop and desktop, along with my installation of Hardis, is create a .desktop file in my home folder under .local, slash, share, slash, applications. The file is named signal, hyphen, desktop, dot, desktop. I will include a copy of that in the show notes in the ease of use section of my review. The %U in the command passes the username to the application. If it, I don't know if that's needed, but it was there, so I just reused it. Now when I search for Signal, I select the one that has the generic icon and not the Signal branded one. I am not faulting Partis for this because just about all distros do this. I actually fault the Signal devs for, for this. There are a couple closed github suggestions to add a minimize to tray option in signal which is available in every other operating systems version of it except for linux unfortunately the devs think creating the desktop file with the minimize to tray option is the solution you know grumble grumble if you have an electron app that doesn't uh, minimize the tray try this solution just replace flatpack after the run command. And uh, I have an example in the show notes. If you ever made a .desktop file, you'll be familiar with it. But basically, you just have the uh, brackets, and they have the name, the comments, you know, etc. It's very straightforward once you see it. When I booted to the XFC edition, I saw they are using the LightDM Display Manager. The login screen was of... The wallpaper I was using on the desktop. I think that adds a bit of polish to the installation and looks very professional. I wish they would have done that in the GNOME edition as GDM does support login screen images, though many distros never take advantage of that. They have a trash, home, and SSD icons on the desktop. I notice there is one panel located at the bottom of the screen. The usual icons are listed like Wi-Fi, sound, clock, etc. The theme is the same as in GNOME. Overall, it is the same experience I had with the GNOME, with some uh, exceptions. I never had any update notifications. I had to open the Pardis updater and check for updates. It prompted me for my password and then presented me with a list, just as it did in GNOME. The update process after that was the same. The notification of my applications were what I expected from uh, XFCE. They minimize in the system tray and show updates when available. For Signal, I was able to edit the slash user slash share slash applications slash signal hyphen desktop dot desktop file and add the used icon command switch. For some reason, I don't understand. Sometimes that doesn't work and you need to create a separate one in your home folder as I previously described. And that slash user slash share, that's where all of your desktop files are held. Memory and disk use. GNOME. 7.5 gigabytes of space used on the SSD. 637 megabytes of memory was used uh, reported by Free-HM which I thought was pretty good for GNOME. And XFCE had 7 gigs of the space on the SSD. 580 megabytes of memory was reported by Free-HM, which is about typical for XFCE. Ease of finding help. I did not seek out any help. I did, however, scroll through their form. It appears active. You may need to use a translator, even though I selected English. That is because some of the menu items and some of the forum posts are in Turkish. They also list Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Discord, and YouTube. I will look into leaving a suggestion in their GitHub since I do have an account. Plays nice with others? Yes, it plays very nicely with others. I wish others worked the way it does. Stability. It is Debian stable. It is stable as you can get. As for their applications, I didn't have any issues with them. Now, the similar dishes to check out, well, to match uh, theming to theming and everything, I would say MX Linux and Spiral Linux. Ratings. Ease of installation for a new user. I'm going to say 7 out of 10 because it's still Debian. A little bit. Tougher on the end curses, but I think most people are going to choose the GUI. Experienced users, it's going to be a 10 out of 10. Harder issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, community, and web. I'm just going to be generous and say 9, because I did see there was a lot of English. So I'm pretty sure if you post something in English, you're going to get an English reply. At least that's my assumption. Ease of use, I'm going to say 8 out of 10. And I kind of uh, averaged that between the two of them because the little niggly things in the XFC not getting notifications and, and such. But overall, yeah, I could overlook that somewhat. Plays nice with others, so oh, 10 out of 10. I don't know what they're doing with their script to uh, rename the uh, grub entries, but well done. Stability 10 out of 10. It's Debian at the core. And I'm going to have two uh, overall ratings. 8 out of 10 for the XFCE for the previous mentioned niggly bits. And 9 out of 10 for, uh, for the GNOME. Now my final comments. I wasn't sure what to expect after my language issues with the live ISO. Overall, I was very pleased with both editions. I think the XFCE edition needs a bit more work to be at the level of the GNOME edition. With that... I will say that if they added the login screen image to match the chosen desktop wallpaper, it will be a very professional first impression like it was on the XFCE edition. I mean, I can't understate that. People that are used to Windows and graphical, and when you boot the computer up and you see this beautiful wallpaper and a login screen, it just really looks good. The only issue I have, well, with newer hardware, is the kernel is only at 5.10, a newer kernel would be better since this is based on Debian stable once Debian testing 12 is released they may update the kernel if they don't already custom compile their kernel and add new features which I'm not sure if they do or not. When Biku told me that this is in his opinion he found Partis to be the best out-of-the-box Debian distro I was very curious. However, I must say that I agree. The developers of Partis have really done a great job and should be proud of their distro. Now let's move on to Joss's review.
2: Alright, so the distro I'm reviewing is um, called uh, TrueNAS Scale. Uh, TrueNAS Scale is a uh, NAS slash server distro. It is developed alongside TrueNAS Core, formerly known as FreeNAS. TrueNAS Core is the BSD version uh, that has been around a lot longer. It is very good for a NAS server, but lacking in application availability. So it is mostly used as a NAS, and that's about it. I know a lot of people do use it for other things, but it's being BSD-based, it's a lot harder to have applications for it, and you got to get into the weeds more of things and learn a lot more if you're not used to BSD. So, uh, TrueNAS Scale, on the other hand, is a Linux-based distro. Actually, it's uh, based on Debian 11. I think they started with Debian 10 when they first created it, and then they updated it to Debian 11. The advantages to this are, um, you have all of the uh, NAS capabilities, but also you have a, a plethora of containers to choose from. TrueNAS scale primarily uses Docker for its container distribution. Uh, you can also use virtual machines to host whole um, operating systems, if you would rather do that. And it uh, just uses KVM to run the virtual machines. The uh, hardware I used for this, I installed it on a uh, my custom built Well, technically, it's Dale's custom-built PC that he uh, gifted me. It has a a gigabyte motherboard, Intel i5-3570K CPU, 16 gigabytes of DDR3 RAM, 128 gigabyte mSATA boot drive, two 128 gigabyte SSDs that are mirrored, two Seagate and one HGST 2 terabyte SSDs in RAID Z1 and four Western Digital Red 1TB HDDs in RAID Z1. I'll explain the RAID part later on. Installation, ease, and issues. The installation of TrueNAS Scale is very simple. You create your boot drive, boot from the USB, and you're dropped into a pretty easy text-based installer. It's curses, so it actually looks decent. It basically allows you to select the drive you want to install on, and then create a password, and that's about it. Then you just reboot the system, pull the USB, and wait for the system to reboot. It really is that easy. I can't emphasize the ease of installation enough for this one. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. On first boot, if your monitor is plugged into the machine you're installing TrueNAS Scale on, uh, then it will eventually boot up to a screen that shows you the IP address that the web interface is running on. And then some other basic options like setting a static IP, rebooting, and shutting down the uh, TrueNAS Scale server. I don't know if I mentioned that yet, but TrueNAS Scale runs a web server that it sets up by itself and you log into it that way from another computer in the browser. Uh, The next step is to use the IP address uh, that TrueNAS Scale is displaying and type that into a web browser that is on the same network as your server. And you'll be brought to a uh, web user interface for TrueNAS Scale. The first screen you will see is just your um, dashboard where it gives you general stats on your uh, system like CPU usage, network usage, RAM usage, and some basic information such as if you need updates. You can configure the dashboard however you'd like and reorder the Windows first CPU usage or RAM or whatever you would like in any order you would like, which is really nice. You can just kind of, you know, make it be how you want it. You will also see there are some options in the top right hand corner like to change your user and shutting down and rebooting the server. Uh, There's also a handy task manager that will show you any running tasks uh, that are being executed. There are several other options on the left side that will bring you to different pages in the uh, interface. Uh, The next one down after dashboard is your storage. Inside the uh, storage tab you can create pools of disks using the web interface with ZFS on the back end. Uh, You can import your pools if you have any that need to be imported. You can take snapshots of those pools and you can uh, see the individual disks that the pools are associated with. And those are all options in the top right hand corner. After you create your pools, you can then start creating data sets, which are like file systems within file systems to separate out your data. I know that sounds redundant, um, but the nice thing about ZFS is every time you create a data set, it is like you're creating a new file system with its own hierarchy and performance. Uh, you can also delegate uh, the performance per data set. Uh, so not one data set will eat all the uh, bandwidth of your disks. You can also set per data set permissions so that not everyone has access to every single uh, data set. And you can also nest data sets inside one another and give each one of them different permissions as well. It's actually pretty nice. And I hesitated to give an example of data sets being like folders in a file system because they are and they aren't. They are in the way that when you make a folder in a file system, that folder has the same amount of storage as the whole file system, you know, depending on what other files you have on it but it's the same concept but that data set also has its own separate set of users and you know performance that you can tweak and all that kind of stuff compression you can put on that data set it's very different from folders but it's kind of similar (laughs) it's confusing for a first time person that's hearing this but definitely um, you can wrap your head around it if you think of it like a folder with just better performance overall Uh, The next tab on the uh, left-hand side is the Shares tab. That basically lets you do all sorts of shares, such as SMB and uh, NFS shares. Uh, You can share even um, iSCSI blocks, which is kind of nice. It's kind of like plugging your hard drive in over the network, which is really nice. (laughs) If you ever uh, had to use that. Here you can also set up all of your shares preferences and enable and disable them and each uh, individual share shows up in this area, uh, so you can manage them all from one window. The next tab down is the data protection tab. This tab is actually really cool because this lets you set up periodic scrub tasks, which a scrub is basically just the way ZFS checks all of your data to make sure it's correct. It has a a snapshot tasks, uh, which snapshots are just the state of the file system, when you take the snapshot so uh, you can roll back to that state at any time so yeah it's like basically just like taking a backup of that folder dataset, whatever you want to call it so you can restore it back when you want to but the snapshot is stored on the same disk so it's not like a backup it's just a way to get back to an older version of your files if you need to replication tasks which basically lets you uh, replicate any ZFS file system pool or anything else directly to another ZFS pool. You can just like kind of send the whole file system to another ZFS file system and like it, it'll be a perfect mirror but that's the way you back it up. You don't use snapshots to up, you use the replication to backup because it literally replicates every block on your disk to another server or disk in your system.
1: Now, is that like ZFS send?
2: Yes, that's what it's using. Uh, basically, the replication, send receive. Okay. Oh, yes. And um, this tab, you can also set up rsync tasks and perform smart tests. rsync is just another way to back up your system, but it just goes file by file instead of the whole block. And the smart test obviously lets you know if your disks are failing or at least hopes to tell you if they're failing. <laughs> Sometimes it's not exactly smart. Uh, The next tab down is the networking tab. Uh, This basically lets you do static routes uh, for different configurations. And uh, you can set up new interfaces such as if you add a NIC, you know, a network interface card to the server and um, it needs to be configured. You can go there to configure it. This also gives you basic information on your system like its host name. Um, If you're using a proxy server and your DNS server that you're using as well, it'll give you both of those uh, informations if you need that. You can also set up a uh, OpenVPN client uh, to access your server from anywhere. But on a side note, what I use is TailScale. I just download the TailScale Docker um, container and then I can access my server uh, from anywhere as long as it's on the same TailScale network as like my phone if I want to access it from there or another computer. Yeah, TailScale is another can of worms. That is, it's an amazing application and uh, yeah, I would uh, talk hours on that. (laughs) Uh, The next tab down is the uh, Credentials tab. It is a tab that you can set up local users and groups, uh, certificates, and even two-factor authentication. This is a very important tab because this is how you are able to get your shares to work properly because you need uh, to have a user on the server and a group that the share is associated with so that you can um, have passwords and whatnot for your shares so you don't you know just opening them up to whoever you can also set up active directory in this tab as well um, i don't use that at home because it's kind of crazy <laughs> but if you're in a work environment that definitely will help things uh, the next tab down um, is your virtualization tab this is where you can create your virtual machines if you would like to uh, use them instead of docker containers or you can use both at the same time it doesn't matter it's just another thing you can use another tool in your uh, belt Uh, this is nice especially if you need to test out something remotely Um, you can just quick install another operating system and it would be like you're actually on the on the same network with another computer this is pretty self-explanatory it's basically just like using virtualbox or anything like that it's all within tailscales interface and actually um to note about using an operating system within an operating system to be on the same network. I actually did have to use that once. It really does work well if you have to do that because if you're using a virtual machine on your server, then that virtual machine is like another computer that's literally inside the building that your um, TrueNAS scale server is in. So it's pretty nice. It's, it's a step above like using tail scale, basically, (laughs) brings you literally to the building instead of being in your building, but on the same network. The next tab down is the uh, Docker where you would do your um, Docker, you know, containers where you'd get those. And when you first open that tab, it'll um, ask you where you want to store your apps, uh, which pool you want to store them on. I choose to store my apps on my uh, SSD because it's a lot faster uh, to deploy them on an SSD than it is a hard drive. Uh, This process does not take long um, and deploying the apps should not take that long either on an SSD, but adding true charts uh, takes a while. True charts can take anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour to actually add all of the options. Uh, Once you add the repository, it just has to pull down all of the containers, verify them and all that. Uh, One thing to definitely keep in mind is that the official apps are actually pretty limited on options because they're basically ready to go out of the box. So if you need to do any or want to do any configuration of your applications to fine tune them, you'll need to use the TrueCharts version. Plex, for example, has an official version and a TrueCharts version. I don't know what happened to where I explain all this in the beginning of this, but I, I did have an explanation of all this. <laughs> so true charts is another like repo you can add to TrueNAS scale that will significantly increase your docker container options so the original TrueNAS scale docker containers you have like maybe 10 12 something like that when you add true charts you get like over 100 definitely probably more like 200 um, applications that you can use including some that i don't quite understand like firefox like why would you want firefox on a server that I don't know, that doesn't make sense. I get like Firefox, if you want to you know, run your own server on Firefox to make an account and all that, I get that. But the actual Firefox application for your browser, I, I don't know why they include that in there, but they do. There's uh, one last really cool feature that I can use inside of the apps tab, and that's the fact that you can actually um, import any Docker container on Docker Hub. It's not supported at all, like if you do this, you're on your own, uh, so you'll have to make sure that you keep it up to date and manage it yourself but otherwise you can totally do that if the repo is missing an application that you need currently i run plex home assistant tailscale unify and true command on my uh true nas server all these run really well and i haven't had any issues so far i've also done several updates on the applications and they seem to have gone smoothly One of the nice things is that you can create a snapshot of your container before you update it and then roll back if it doesn't work. There's also an automatic rollback feature but I don't trust anything automatic so I always make a manual snapshot uh, just in case. The last two tabs are not that exciting but they're very important. The first is the reporting tab which gives you time-based information on your CPU usage, CPU temperature, RAM usage, and disk storage usage. You can get a time-based usage timeline for them in that tab, which is very uh, useful, especially when you're trying to troubleshoot why an application is using a lot of RAM or CPU or even the network, even if it's using a lot of the uh, network. Then the final tab is the system settings tab. That's the tab where you can update your uh, system if you would like to get uh, general information on your system, you can also do that. You can get more advanced options. Um, You can see your boot devices and see how healthy they are. You can look at all of the services such as SMB or NFS or uh, many other services um, such as SSH and the like. This is also where you can get into the shell of your system which you can do a lot with uh, the shell, but you're somewhat limited unless you add things that aren't supported uh, into the system. For example, apt is not installed even though this is a Debian-based system. There are two caveats to using TrueNAS Scale. Number one, when you install TrueNAS Scale, you don't get to use the storage on the disk you install it on. That is solely reserved for the system. Number two, ZFS can get expensive because of the way you have to expand your storage. When you create a pool, uh, you cannot just simply add a drive to that pool without risking destroying the entire pool. The only way you can currently add a drive to a pool is to add it as a single VDEV. And the problem with that is uh, if one of your VDEVs in your pool goes bad, then you lose the entire pool. So if you have multiple disks in one VDEV, you can lose multiple disks before your pool goes bad. It costs a lot to replace all of your drives let's say you uh, you have three two terabyte drives and you want to upgrade your storage to four terabyte drives you have to buy three four terabyte drives to actually recreate your pool you don't just recreate your pool and get rid of your old one you can just add the new pool to the system but you're still going to end up buying that many drives Sorry if that got confusing, but ZFS is very low level topic and it's somewhat confusing uh, to learn at first. So basically what I was saying there is you have to replace your entire pool. You can't just add a disk to it. Like if you have three drives and you want to add one disk to it, you can do that. But then if that new disk goes bad, the whole pool is lost. All three of the other disks will need to be reset up as brand new pools. ZFS is like kind of like RAID, but not... So that's why the concept of pools and VDEVs and all that are in there. And I thought I explained the um, RAID Z1 and all that in this, but I guess not. I'll just explain it now quick. So like RAID Z1 is like RAID 5. So you have one disk that can fail and you'll still have your pool. It will, will still be available then it goes RAID Z2 and RAID Z3, which you can lose two drives and three drives. That's what the one, two, and three stand for. So I figured I'd just explain that. And uh, yeah, like I said, it is a it is a very uh, confusing topic to learn. But if you're interested at all, Reddit has a really good place you can go for ZFS talk if you uh, are really interested in that. Ease of use. Once you log into the web GUI. Uh, this distro is very easy to use for a more advanced user, but it may get overwhelming to a new user. Even so, compared to using all of this on the command line, the system is much, much easier than that. Memory and disk usage. It was using about 2.69 gigabytes of space on my SSD. Memory usage for TrueNAS scale is different from a desktop distro. It uses a feature of ZFS to load files into the RAM for quick access. This feature can add up to a ton of RAM usage, but that is a good thing about ZFS. It's like a cache that it uses it so that you can quickly access files that you're usually using. Like let's say uh, for Plex, for instance, if you're watching a lot of movies that are related to each other, it'll store those in RAM so that it will load them a lot faster when you load the movies up. Ease of finding help. There's a ton of documentation on their forums for not only TrueNAS Scale, but also TrueNAS Core, which a lot of TrueNAS Core's documentation translates over to Scale's documentation. They also have a very vibrant Reddit community that I have used many times to get answers to my problems and not once have they failed me yet, I should say. Yeah, the community there has been really good and uh, they'll answer you real quick. Plays nice with others. Uh, TrueNAS Scale is a server distro, so it's really not meant to play nice with others, but it does use Grub as the bootloader so it may work fine with other distros but I didn't really test because there's no way to really try and test that. Stability. Uh, this is so far one of the most rock solid server distros I um, have ever used. And the best part is if anything goes wrong there is an easy rollback solution built into the system. That on top of all of the backup solutions via ZFS there is basically no way this can explode on you. Not to mention, even if your main root drive goes bad, you can just reinstall a new root drive, install TrueNAS Scale, and all you have to do is point that drive to where you were using your configuration files from your last time because you store your configuration on another drive. And the data, you point it to the configuration file and basically it just resets everything up as you had it before. Gaming Ease. You would think this is not applicable um, to this scenario, but there is an easy GPU pass-through option. So in theory, you could install a VM on this distro and pass the GPU through to it and basically have a gaming system that is remote. All you have to do is log in and you can game over your LAN or um, internet connection, which is something that I haven't tested on this, but it's literally just a like, box box That comes down and you can select your GPU you want to pass through and then it just does it for you, which is really easy comparatively speaking to anything else. Similar distros to check out, TrueNAS Core, which is the BSD version as I said, Proxmox, which is another server distro that does virtualization, and Rockstore OS. Rockstore OS I actually just found out about and it's actually an OpenSUSE based um, NAS distro that focuses on ButterFS, which is very um, intriguing to me. Uh, Now for the ratings, ease of installation for a new user, I'd say seven out of 10. It's very easy, but the end curses interface can get a little jarring for a new user. I can understand that an experienced user, 10 out of 10, it's extremely easy. Just click, click, click. And basically, as long as you know what it's talking about, you'll be able to install it easily. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. As much as I looked on the Reddit community, I didn't see anything that was related to a hardware issue. Mostly just software stuff and how to work with ZFS. So I'm going to say 10 out of 10 for that because I didn't really experience anything and I haven't seen anything that I know of. Ease of finding help, 10 out of 10. They have, like I said, good Reddit community. They have forums. They have a bunch of documentation. It's uh, really easy to get help. Ease of use. Once it's um installed and everything, it's pretty easy to use because it just uses a web user interface, which is a lot of people are used to nowadays so yeah i i I feel that it would come very easy to someone if it was just given to them and they were logging into it by themselves plays nice with others Uh, i give it a five out of ten i should have probably given it less because i didn't test it and i i know it's not meant to do this but since it uses grub i feel that it would probably be okay i don't see why it wouldn't work stability 10 out of 10 it's based on debian what else do i have to say (laughs) Uh, Works with games. I gave this a 3 out of 10 only because it's not really meant for that. And not only that, but it's probably not as easy as I made it sound to pass through the GPU and make a VM and all that stuff. But maybe it is. I never tested it. So I'm just going to say 3 out of 10 to err on the side of caution. So the overall rating for this, I would say, is a uh, 7.8 out of 10. Final comments. TrueNAS Scale is a perfect solution for anyone needing any kind of quick setup and use server solution or NAS. The distro is extremely easy to set up and to install applications. And a lot of these are complex docker images that are simply a few checkboxes away from being installed. As I stated above, there are some pitfalls to this distro but not enough to get me to turn away from it. At this point I think I'll be using this as my primary server distro for a long time to come. Dale, you had a comment.
1: Yeah, this wanted this a quick thing about the uh, thing explaining about the uh, adding drives to the to the pool. Yeah, I wasn't very clear on that. <laughs> well, I mean, you did better than I would because I don't want to explain things really simply either. But I just wanted to say, when Sun Microsystems created this system, it was enterprise grade from the beginning. And you have enterprise budgets. So for them to go, okay, we've got a 12 terabyte NAS or a 12 terabyte pool. Okay, purchasing, we want to buy a 24 terabyte pool. (laughs) And they just buy it, install it, and move on with life. So that's why I don't want people to get the idea that it was poorly engineered. No. Right. No, yeah. This is enterprise grade software. So... Continue. Yeah, no.
2: Also, I I need to add, too, that they are currently working on a way to add drives without having to add them the way that they have been, so that you will be able to just add a drive without worrying about losing that drive and losing everything.
1: Yeah, they paused that because that's when they merged the source code between the operating systems, and they're continuing now to work on that.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: New releases this month from 922 to 1027, XTix 22.9, Maybox 22.09, Debian Edu 11.5.0, SysLinux OS 2022 09 24, Raspi OS 2022 09 22, Crux 3.7, OSGO Live 15.0, Spiral Linux 11.220925, Linux FX 11.2.22.04.3, Nitrux 2022.1001, Arch 2022.10.01, FatDog64.813, Sparky Linux 2022.10, Redcore 22.01, KDE Neon 2022 1006, Snow Linux 1.22, KOS 2022.10, Robo Linux 12.08, Makulu Linux 2022 10 05, Open Mamba 2022 1012, Kodachi 8.26, Blue Star six point zero point one Arch Labs twenty twenty two point ten point fifteen PZ two point three point one Void twenty twenty two one zero zero one Hunix sixteen point zero point eight point two EasyOS four point four point two AntiX twenty two LibreElect ten point zero point three SmartOS twenty twenty two one zero two zero IPFire two point two one Core one seven one OpenBSD 7.2, Ubuntu 22.10, all flavors including Unity, Arco Linux 22.11.02, System Rescue 9.05, Peropisys 1.8, 4M Linux 40.1, Tails 5.6, Regatta 22.0.6, and Voyager 22.10. <laughs> In feedback from our Telegram channel, Londoner writes: "Your review on Spiral Linux on DHD35 to check disk space on butterfs rather than use df. You can use sudo butterfs file system usage slash. Note if you have subvolumes such as slash and slash home on the same partition, using slash home in the above command will give the same result." Refer Learn the Linux TV video at 23 minutes, 56 seconds. And there are links for all this. And Dale has a response.
1: Thanks. I tried a couple commands that gave different results. Personally, I think it should be compatible with DF and DU. I will watch that video. I've seen his videos before and he does good work. Like Ma said, the uh, the links will be in the show note, and I did want to expand on that just a little bit since I did that reply. I personally think that because it's open source, so I don't see why they can't write something to make DF and DU possible. Maybe I'm not thinking big enough, and I don't understand the development of it, but that's just my opinion. But I did watch that video, and, and uh, he does do uh, – I'm blanking on his name that does uh, – the video, but, uh, it's, uh, very, uh, very good. And Londoner
0: also says regarding DHD episode 36, beautiful failures. There have been multiple posts on the mint forums in recent months regarding slow downloads of Firefox. It is a comparatively large download. The last one was 68 megabytes. And it seems the default package server sometimes gets overloaded. Usually switching to a local mirror and software sources results in a much faster download. To which I respond, and I'm aware of that. This has happened on and off since Mint started packaging its own Firefox package with 20.3, but I thought they would have fixed the issue by now. Moving on to emails, you want to take this, Dale?
1: Sure. Uh, Listener Biku, he uh, wrote me to my personal email. Hi there, Dale. I know you're a fan of Debian, so here is a great yet little-known Debian-based distro for your consideration. In my view, it has to be one of the best out-of-the-box Debian-based distros out there. It's partus. Would love your thoughts and views on this distro after you have a test run of it. Take care. Bye, Biku. And my uh, reply. Thank you for the suggestion. I will check it out and most likely review it in a future episode.
0: Or more like a current episode.
1: And I did it the next episode because I was on the fence about the ones I was going to. So I was like doing the uh, user requested ones first. And then uh, Pico had a follow up to my reply. Absolutely looking forward to that episode. By the way, you guys mused about Grub reporting labeling Ubuntu instead of Zubuntu or Kubuntu in one of the recent episodes. I think grub slash osprober gets the information from parsing the output of the following command. lsb underscore release space hyphen i space hyphen s 2 greater than space slash dev slash null. The buff command gets the relevant information from the slash etc slash lsb hyphen release file. This file is a plain text file where the information relevant to the distro such as name, release number, code name, and description can be set. grub slash osprober can also be set to get this information by parsing slash etc slash os hyphen release, it's a file. This file can hold even more information like links to the homepage, Bugzilla, and other support forum of the distro besides the name, version, number, code name, description, etc. Distro maintainer can also set the name to be reported by Grub slash OS hyphen prover and slash ETC slash default slash grub by declaring in all capitals grub underscore distributor equals and double quote my super distro double quote he gave as an example variable if he or she wishes. Now, why Ubuntu and or other official derivatives of Ubuntu are not setting their own distro name in one of the files is up to them. Maybe something to do with canonicals, terms, conditions. Definitely, maybe. Smiling face. I hope you and other hosts, listeners might find the above information useful. Say hello to Moss, Tony, and Josh wishing Tony a speedy recovery, Biku. And I replied, thank you very much for sharing this information. Yes, I will share your email during the next episode, which actually is this episode after next. (laughs) Sorry about that again. It will be a good information for everyone. I never looked up how OS Prober functions. Thanks again, Dale. Yeah, and I don't know why Conical doesn't do that. I don't know if they use the phrase too many chiefs, not enough Indians.
0: Well, you'd think each flavor would have its own group that would say, hey, why don't we go in there and fix this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Josh? No, I said I kind of agree there. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you, you grow to a certain size and you lose control, in my opinion. Because if you look at these companies like, I don't want to get in the rant, but you look at these companies like Microsoft and Oracle and some of these, they're so large that, There are parts of the company, the other part doesn't even know what they're doing. Sometimes they don't even know they exist.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks for that feedback, Londoner and Biku.
1: Yes, we appreciate your feedback. And moving on.
0: (music) Announcements for chatting with us further. You may choose to join our Telegram group or our Discord channel. Where can our listeners find you, Josh? I'm uh,
2: at Josh on Tech on most social networks, or email me at joshontech at pm.me. Um, also, you can find me on the uh, Crowbar Kernel Panic podcast.
1: Dale? I am at Dale underscore CDL on Telegram and Discord. My email is Dale underscore CDL at pm.me.
0: And you can hear me every week at Full Circle Weekly News and on Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me, and I'm on Mastodon as at at Plus, you can find me, Dale, and Dylan at itsmoss.com. Before we go, we would like to thank all those who make this project possible.
1: Archive.org for storing and helping distribute this program. Audacity, which we use to record
0: and edit the show. Tony Hughes for managing the website and producing and editing the podcast.
1: Joshua Lowe for work on our logo.
2: All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining
0: the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Mid-Air Machine, creators of the song Streets of Santivo, used as our music under Creative Commons license.
1: Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel, Richard Stallman for the GNU Toolkits, and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free
0: and open
2: source slash Libre software.
0: We will be back next month. Thank all of you for listening.